You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. Morning, everybody. Good to be worshiping with you again this Sunday. It's uh, kind of one of those weird long weekends that isn't really a long weekend. We have Tuesday off. We don't have Monday off unless you're my kids who have Monday off school. Um, it's a weird one. It's uh, it's cup day coming up, I believe, um, and it's also Halloween, All Hallows Eve, uh, and it's Reformation Sunday today. So there's a lot going on, and um, the one I'm most interested in is the Reformation Sunday one. That's where we celebrate the fact that there was a great rediscovery of the Bible, the Bible translated into language that we could understand. And so that's one of the things that brings us together this morning is this desire that we have um, to read the Bible in our language, as Gihan just did, that lengthy reading from Romans chapter 8. Hopefully you're getting to know it more and more. Um, And I mean, we have those brothers and sisters to thank 500 years ago who risked their lives, in some cases died, so that we could have the Bible in our language. So, let's not take it for granted. Let's jump in uh, once again into Romans 8 this morning. Uh, Just before we we do that, I want to continue to ask you, encourage you to pray for our church um, as we work towards coming back together uh, in this building at the end of November. So uh, we're going to begin the Advent season by coming back together in the building. Please be praying that we will be able to have as many people here as we can and that we wouldn't need to segregate our congregation or separate our congregation. Um, So big things to pray for, things that are obviously well beyond our control, but not beyond the control of the Lord that we worship. So please continue to pray in the lead up to Advent. Uh, Advent is, um, is, is an appropriate season for us to come back together because you might remember from last year we did a lot of work on Advent and the idea that um, Advent is a, is a time of longing, a time of yearning, a time of looking forward. And um, while during that time we do remember the first Advent, the first appearance of Jesus in the manger, um, actually, the first Christians, their major focus at Advent was on the second coming of Jesus, on his second Advent, on his second appearance that is yet to come. And so, uh, if we get the balance right, then we come into Advent with this really appropriate sense of tension, um, that understanding that we live between two Advents. We live between the first and second coming. We live in the now and not yet. Hopefully this is a phrase you've become familiar with because it explains everything that's ever happened to you. Everything that's ever happened to you in your life, everything that's ever happened in the church age um, from Jesus' resurrection and ascension through to today is uh, encapsulated in this idea of the now and the not yet. That in his first coming, Jesus brings the kingdom of God into being. He inaugurates the kingdom of God, uh, and yet it's not yet fully consummated and won't be consummated until he comes again. Uh, In Jesus' life, death, burial, resurrection, we have forgiveness of sins, and yet, 
until he comes again, we're going to battle against sin. We're going to live um, under the, the, the curse that though it has been broken, still prevails until he will come again. This is the tension we live in. It's now and it's not yet. We saw that last week. We saw an example of this in verse 22 and 23. It says, We know that the whole creation has been groaning together, right? That's the, the sound of the earth in the now and not yet is groaning. Has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Not only that, but we ourselves who have the Spirit as the first fruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption the redemption of our bodies. This, sh- this is a, a clear example of now and not yet because you could read that and say, hang on a second, I thought two weeks ago we looked at this whole idea of adoption and we were rejoicing the fact that we have been adopted, that we have been adopted by God, that it's not something that we have achieved on our own merits, but we were like orphans who have been adopted by a king. And that is a done deal. We now are able to say to God when we address him, we address him as Abba, as Daddy. So if that's true, if that's a done deal, if I have been adopted, then what's he going on about here? We also groan within ourselves, eagerly awaiting for our adoption. Well, it's just, he's just illustrating the point. It's now and not yet. Yes, we've been adopted, but we haven't yet fully arrived in God's household. The, the best is yet to come. We groan for the day when that final consummation will come. It's now and it's not yet. The Apostle John said something very similar in 1 John 3. He said, See what great love the Father has given us that we should be called God's children, and we are. Now, we are. We are God's children! Exclamation point. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Dear friends, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when He, when Jesus appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him as He is. We are God's children now and what we will be has not... Do you get it? This is the tension we live in. It's now and it's not yet. And we have to, you have to, I mean, if you don't get this, so much of the Bible won't make any sense to you. So much of the Christian life and experience won't make sense to you. Because unless you hold those two things in tension, that it's now and it's not yet, then you find yourself falling into some very weird theology. Most of the really weird theology um, over the last couple of thousand years has come when those two things haven't been held in balance. It's like the image is like two kids holding a rope, right? And, and as, so long as they're pulling with kind of equal weight, they're both standing. But as soon as one pulls harder, they both go down. And that's exactly the same as with this tension of the now and not yet, where you have churches that emphasize the now. God's kingdom is here now. God's victory has been won now. We are more than conquerors through Christ who, you know, we're going to get to in Romans 8. Lots of now, lots of triumph, lots of, um, lots of the kingdom of God is among us kind of theology where that has, has a kind of um, 
where that displaces the not yet theology, then you have Christian triumphalism, you have this expectation that everything's going to be great, there's not going to be any suffering or sickness or anything like, and so you fall into all kinds of bad theology and, and missed expectations and disappointments, ultimately. If you, do, if you go all not yet, well, yeah, Jesus came, but, you know, it's, we're still living in the midst of present darkness and Satan's still at large and it's all not yet, then there's no expectation of anything good going to happen. No, well, we could pray for him to be healed, but no, it's probably not going to happen until Jesus comes again. Well, you know, ultimate healing is going to happen at the resurrection. We shouldn't expect anything before now, before then. This not yet theology reduces expectation and makes God smaller than he is. So in either case, you run into trouble. Let's think about it like this. Let's do a case study. When it comes to the issue of sin, unless you have a now and not yet theology, you'll fall into all kinds of error when it comes to our doctrine of sin. If, if, it's, if your expectation is, or if you put the weight on not yet, then you will, have, uh, you will sort of have a diminished appetite for fighting sin you will have you will have a reduced um, sense of uh, optimism about being able to overcome sin in your life because you'll say well ultimately sin isn't going to be defeated until Jesus comes again so we shouldn't have too much you know high expectations in this life I'm never going to be able to overcome this or that thing Um, and so you start to make excuses for yourself that the Bible doesn't make for you or you have lower expectations of overcoming sin than the Bible gives you you start to settle and accommodate the sin that's trying to destroy you I I saw this my very first week here at this church I remember very very vividly here on the Sunday met a bunch of obviously all new people one of the guys that I met um, was a real character. He doesn't, hasn't come to our church for a long time now, and I know that he won't mind me sharing this story. All right? So I met him. He, was, he stayed longest of all. It was him and then the Hargraves, at, as per. And, uh, and, so, and we were talking for a long time. Such a character. The next time I saw him was the next morning when I was walking on my way to work, and I stopped at the CS Square, and he was there with a friend, absolutely smashed, drunk, just staggering around. And he saw me across the way and recognized me from meeting me the day before. And he was like, hey, Charlo! And, uh, and so, big scene. Uh, this is my introduction to life in Caroline Springs. Someone's doing donuts in the car park and this guy's smashed. Anyway, I, I felt so disappointed because I was overwhelmed, to be honest, with, I was just overwhelmed with the size of what I perceived the size of the task in this parish. Um, so many reasons for, for pessimism, to be honest. And, uh, and I thought to myself, I just need a few good men. I need a few good people to help kind of build this church and I had seen identified him the day before as one of them 
as like he could be a leader. He could be someone who helps us do the gospel ministry here. And then the very next morning, I saw him in the state. And so I waited 24 hours and then I gave him a call. Some of you had this call and said, why don't you come in? Um, why don't you come into church and we'll have a chat? And so I sat down with him just over there in the foyer, wanted it to be, at least be able to be seen in the public in case things went bad. And, uh, and I just said to him, I, I just said to him, you can't, I wasn't very pastorally sensitive, to be honest. And I basically just said to him, you can't do that. You can't, you can't come in here and praise Jesus and, talk about your involvement in the church and and tell me how you want to be involved in the ministry and then get smashed the next morning and uh, to be honest I don't think I approached it with much gospel restoration in mind I was just angry and he got angry really angry uh and he was much bigger than me and um and some if you guys who were around at the time will know why I should have been concerned being up here alone in that situation but here's what he said very vividly remember this he said I'm not perfect I'm not perfect and on the one hand yeah we know none of us is there's only ever been one perfect man But let's just take that for granted. Of course, none of us is perfect. But if you major on the not yetness of this present age that we're living in, then you will start to use that not as an explanation for why you still struggle, but as an excuse. You'll give yourself license to sin because, well, I'm not going to be perfect until Jesus comes back. That's if we overemphasize that side of it. We can do the same on the other side as well. We can emphasize the nowness of God's kingdom. That Jesus has died for us and has justified us and has forgiven us. And I am so forgiven. I am so counted righteous in his kingdom that I now have nothing to repent of. I have triumphed over sin. There have been Christians throughout the ages who have thought this is something that we can actually attain, a sinlessness before God. Because, well, the kingdom of God is here. The Spirit lives within me. I'm now no no longer living according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, as Paul has said in this chapter. So if that's the case, then maybe I can walk in Jesus' footsteps perfectly with nothing outside of the lines. I think I've mentioned before the guy who used to come here, again, no longer does, but would very, very plainly and purposefully not say the confession prayer in our service because he had nothing to confess. He was forgiven. He had been made righteous before God. And to those of us who are on that side of the spectrum, 
the Apostle John says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So you can see, we live in a tension, and the tension has to remain, lest we fall into all kinds of strange theology. We live in a now and not yet, and it's, in some ways, it's ambiguous. And most of us, and increasingly so, don't like living in that ambiguity. We don't like living in grey. We don't like living in tension. We want things resolved. And to that, Jesus says, I'm coming soon. All will be resolved then. In the meantime, it's now and it's not yet. We have, we have to maintain this tension, otherwise we're going to fall into all kinds of either arrogance or despair. And we need to apply this truth to all of the things that we do, even the really good things like gospel ministry, revival, prayer life, healing. Like just you, you name anything that we're into and passionate about and hopeful for, we need to apply this tension to it. We live... Between Advents, my friends, we live in the now and the not yet. And here's the thing about it. The cool thing about living in the tension is that it actually strengthens our hope. It's like the tension on, I don't know, the gym equipment that you guys use and I don't. Uh, it's, it's the tension strengthens us. The resistance in some, in some sense strengthens us. It strengthens, specifically strengthens our hope. Because if it's, if, it's all, if, it, if it's all not yet, then we've got no evidence for hope. We've got no, there's nothing we can see that it gives us evidence that God is with us and His kingdom is growing and, you know, His, His Spirit is active. But if it's all now, then there's nothing left to hope for. There's nothing future to work towards. There's nothing causing us to grow. It's pretty much how Paul says it in verse 24 to 25. He says, Now in this hope we are saved, but hope that is seen, we could say hope that is now, all now, is not hope. Because who hopes for what he has or what he sees? Now if we hope for what we do not see, we wait or eagerly wait for it with patience. Hey, there's another tension. We eagerly wait with patience. Work that one out. We eagerly wait with patience. That's the kind of tension we live in, in the now and the not yet. If it was all here now, if it's true, some of the famous preachers and authors that you know that say that everything is within your grasp now, declare it and it will be, name it and claim it, Christians need not suffer in any way. Christians need not get sick. Christians won't get COVID because they're covered by the blood of Jesus. All of that stuff is what's called over-realized eschatology. That is, it's the, it's the sin of the Corinthian church. If you want to read through 1 Corinthians, you'll see this. They expect to have it all now and they have no space for not yet. We can't do it. We can't do it that way. Now, 
many of us, I think, with good reason, are coming to the end of 2021 feeling pretty jaded, feeling a little bit hopeless. We're coming to the end of 2021 and we're all just a little bit over it. Because we were told, we were told back in 2020, 10 years ago in 2020, we were told that 2021 was going to be way better than 2020. 2020, that was a write-off, but 2021 is coming. New Year's Eve, hope building. Turns out it was just as bad as 2020. In fact, I think it was probably worse. We're less naive now than we were last year. More cynical, more jaded. Some of us have started to sound like the despairing Friedrich Nietzsche, the great atheist philosopher, the nihilist. He said, in reality, hope is the worst of all evils because it prolongs man's torments. It's the hope that kills you. Some of us are coming to the end of this year feeling like that. I think that's fair enough. If you tell me you're coming to the end of this year and you're feeling hopeless, I'll say, that makes sense. But if you ask me, am I hopeful? I'll say yes. Full of hope. Hope full. And I'm hopeful not because of anything temporal, not because of anything in this world. I look around and I don't feel hopeful at all. I spend five minutes on Facebook and I want to end it all. Doom scrolling. I think that's the word of 2021. Doom scrolling, just eating up all kinds of reasons to be cynical and hopeless and to embrace the nihilism of Nietzsche. And yet, I'm hopeful. How can that be, how can that be true? I'm just like everyone else. I have this great temptation to put my hope in temporal things. The things that I can see things that I have, the things in the now. It's springtime, for one thing. The, the days are getting warmer. Look out there right now and it's sunny and got the whole day ahead of me. Some reason for hope, I guess. Maybe you've got some reason for hope because COVID, maybe there is a post-COVID world just waiting for us if we get enough vaccines and enough booster shots and enough masks and enough gel. Maybe, I, maybe there's reason to hope because I got myself a Mocha Master coffee maker and I have this filtered coffee made for me every morning. It tastes a little bit like the new creation. 
I go to bed each night and I think when I wake up, I get to drink more of that coffee. Reason to hope. It's a reason to hope that my, my football team, my, my soccer team, Liverpool, they, they're, they're shaping up pretty well to win the Premier League this year. I've got hope. For, and, and, and furthermore, here's a local example for you who don't get that one. If Melbourne can win the grand final, then maybe Essendon can one day. It all sounds pretty pathetic, doesn't it? It sounds pretty tenuous. That's the way that we use the word hope in our culture, in the English language. We use the word hope as kind of like this tenuous, like wishful thinking. Hope as not win a game this year. But that's not how the Bible uses the word hope. That word has been distorted in our language, in our culture. The word, it's the way language works. It kind of it, words get molded to mean what we want them to mean, and in our case, that has become like this wishful thinking. Jiminy Cricket, let's hope for the best. That's not what the Bible means when it talks about hope. For the Bible, in the Bible's language, the word hope is sure. And certain. So when Paul talks about us having a hope, he talks about something that is not up for grabs, not up for discussion, not up for debate. This is something sure and certain that we can anchor ourselves to. For us as Christians, if you ask me, why am I hopeful about the future? It's not because of any of those temporal things. It's because of an event, a historical victory that has already been won. My hope is rooted in the resurrection of Jesus. Nothing less. To be honest, I'm too vulnerable, too emotionally scarred to put my hope in much else but I will put it in this the resurrection of Jesus from the dead the greatest victory that has ever taken place historic rooted in history something that has happened already and something that portents that which is yet to come something that casts light forward into that which is yet to come. I didn't pick up on this until Gihan was just reading it, but verse 11 of this chapter, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his spirit who lives in you. That's our hope. Jesus was raised, therefore we will be raised. Therefore creation itself will be raised, we learned last week. That one cataclysmic event in human history, the thing we arrange human history around, is the great hope, not only of us, but of creation itself. That's what we're groaning for. It's a hope that is sure and certain. This is why I love the language of the prayer book. Originally in the, the Book of Common Prayer, 1662, reworded in the prayer book for Australia and this is what I've said I don't know countless times 
to mourning people as we stand by the graveside, lowering their loved ones into the ground. This is what it says, the prayer that I pray to finish the service. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, you have given us a sure and certain hope of the resurrection to eternal life. In your keeping are all who have departed in Christ. We here commit the body of our sister to be buried in the ground, earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who died and was buried and rose again for us, and who shall change our mortal body that it may be like his glorious body. That's our sure and certain hope. It's not tenuous in any sense. It has already been achieved, and now we are just waiting for it to be consummated. The writer to the Hebrews in chapter 6 puts it like this very poetically, very beautifully. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. Not tenuous, not vague, not hoping for the best. Anchor, firm, secure. So if you're a believer here this morning and you have the first fruits of the Spirit, that is, God has given you this deposit, the Holy Spirit lives within you as the first fruits. It's like His tithe to you. It's, it's the first fruits of the, of the Spirit living, dwelling within you. It's a promise, a seal, a guarantee that you will be yourself resurrected in a new creation. If you are here with us this morning and that spirit dwells within you and it is testifying together with your spirit that you are a child of God, that you are destined for the new creation, that yes, in the meantime you've grown and the now and not yet in the tension, but there is sure and certain hope, reason to be not just optimistic but assured. If that's you this morning then that hope, you need to know that hope is not tenuous. It's not like dependent on you getting yourself together every morning and making sure you say your prayers and read your Bible, though that will help. But it's not resting on that. It's not resting on you. It is something that is given freely as a gift and secured, sure and certain, firm, anchored in the resurrection of Jesus. So I hope you feel that, and I hope you're encouraged that even though we come to the end of this year jaded, even though we live through these present dark times, even though we have much to make us groan, we have reason to hope and we have reason to persevere today. Living in this now and not yet is not just a past first advent thing and then future advent thing and then we're lost in this sea of grey in the middle. No, living in this tension now, there we have reason, very real and vivid reason to hope and to persevere. 
There is something for you to tether yourself to today. We have this hope as an anchor for our soul. And he gives us, Paul gives us in this passage, some very real reason to hope. Very real reason today, in the midst of all of this, to hope, to persevere. Now this might be, I don't know, I, I was going to say this might be the most important verse in this most important chapter. That's probably exaggerating, but relative to how much we know and are cognizant of this truth, it probably is the most important. That is, we overlook this truth all the time. Some of us maybe, maybe don't even know it. And so this truth I'm going to get to in a second might be the most important you need to hear today, at least. Here's some very real, practical reason to hope today. To persevere in hope and optimism. Let me just pray for us for a second. Lord Jesus, please now, even across the airwaves, please now open our hearts to know this truth, to receive it and to be blessed by it. May it work for our perseverance. Whether you come uh, on Tuesday, in the middle of the Melbourne Cup, or if you come in 10,000 years. Irrespective of when, when you make all things new, please use this truth now to encourage us today and for the rest of our lives. In Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness because we do not know what to pray for as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with unspoken groanings. Hmm. This is good news for weak Christians. Which means it's good news for everyone at our church. And for all the Christians all over the world. That's who we are, by the way. We're just weak Christians. This is good news for us because what he just said was, in our weakness, God is drawn to us. Isn't it in our minds and our imagination it works exactly the opposite way? I'm such a weak Christian, God must hate me. Such a weak Christian, God must be fed up with me. I'm such a weak Christian, God is really close to those who are strong Christians, prayer warriors, people who are fasting. And, and yet this, this beautiful verse tells us that actually the people that God is drawn to are the weak ones. Blessed are the poor in spirit. In the same way, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness because we do not know what to pray for as we should. Is that you this morning? 
man, that's me. I, you know, I love the fact that we're doing more and more prayer, like corporate prayer together in our church, prayer meetings every day. But it is a little bit discouraging at the same time because it's just more opportunities for me to realize that I don't know what to pray for. I don't know how to pray. We get prayer requests coming in on all kinds of different platforms all through the day, every day. And I, I just stopped yesterday as another prayer request came in for another seemingly hopeless situation. And I just put my head down and thought, I don't, how am I meant to pray for this? I don't know what to pray for. So this is good news for me. And it's kind of encouraging that Paul includes himself in the group of people who don't know what to pray for. That's encouraging. We don't know what to pray for. We're weak. We're jaded. We're worn down by this life. We're groaning in the tension of the now and the not yet. And yet, in the midst of all of this, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what to pray for as we should, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with unspoken groanings. God is praying for us. And it seems like He's even more keen to pray for us when we don't know what to pray for ourselves. We've come to the end of ourselves. That's when He steps in even more and prays. Praise with unspoken groanings. The Spirit is praying for you this morning. Do you know that? He's interceding for you. And not just the Spirit, but the Son. Later in this chapter, in verse, what is it, 34? Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. The Spirit and the Son interceding for us again the writer to the hebrews picks up on this and he says um in verse in chapter 7 jesus is able to save completely those who come to god through him since he always lives to intercede for them so long as jesus is alive he's praying for you <laughs> this is bonkers I wonder what God's up to right now. Well, I know what the Spirit and the Son are doing. They're praying for me. Even like in the midst of a world that's groaning, the world itself groaning. Every pandemic, every earthquake, not a Melbourne earthquake, but a real one. Every landslide, every miscarriage all right all of them are groans from a creation that is desperate to be released to be recreated to be restored we ourselves groan along with it we're 
we're just so eager. We, we're trying to be patient, but we're eager to be restored. We're eager for our final adoption. And now this, this is the most profound truth of all of it. God is groaning too. God speaks the language of groaning. It's easy for us in the midst of our groaning to think, God doesn't understand what I'm going through. But actually, God speaks the language of groaning. Jesus experienced it himself frequently. And even now, in his glorified state, he intercedes for us. And the Spirit groans along with us. He groans with unspoken groanings with groanings that are beyond words he's praying for you The reason we don't need to be jaded coming into the end of this year is because our hope was never meant to be in temporal stuff to begin with. God never made a promise to us that we would never face a pandemic. God knows that we live in the now and not yet, that we live in this tension and that until he resolves it, we will groan and he will groan along with us. The reason you can be encouraged this morning is because your hope is not vague and tenuous, but anchored in the sure and certain hope of the resurrection of Jesus. That is a past event. The victory is already won. And now, as we live out this life, As we walk between advents, we have reason to hope because God is with us. As we're going to see in the last part of the chapter, he is for us. He will never forsake us. And he is even praying along with us, groaning all the way with us. God knows your heart. And he prays your deepest desires for you. Verse 27, He who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. This should give you great confidence to turn up to prayer meetings at our church. Come along at midday for the midday prayer session. Come along to the monthly prayer sessions. And the reason you don't need to be worried about whether you'll say the right things or not is because, first of all, all of us is weak and none of us knows what to pray. That should be like the tagline for that ministry. Prayer meetings. None of us knows what to pray. The reason we can be confident to pray is because not only is the Spirit and the Son praying along with us, 
but they know our hearts, they know our intentions, and they perfect our prayers according to the will of God. I think it was J.R. Packer said, who said, God corrects our prayers on the way up to him. <laughs> That's some reason to hope. That's reason to persevere. God speaks the language of groaning. Now all of this, all of that we have, we have accumulated so far in this chapter, this, this argument that Paul has been developing is the ground and foundation for him to say the very next thing he says, which is what we're going to get to next week. And I'm going to preface it now and then pray for us. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Let's pray. Father, this morning I pray for my brothers and sisters, for myself, that we would stop trying so hard to establish some kind of optimistic view of the future based on whatever's happening around us. Is my marriage going well? Am I making enough money? Do I have cool clothes? Does my car start in the morning? Lord, these things will never give us any sure and certain hope. Forgive us for where we've attached our affections to things that can never satisfy us. Lord, just as a community now, as a church, as a body, we lay those things down and rather take up the sure and certain hope of the resurrection to eternal life. I pray this morning that you would renew our belief that Jesus rose and therefore so shall we. And as we move through this life in the ambiguity of it all, in the now and not yet, in the tension, in the groaning, please restore our trust in you. Renew our hope in you. Father, we continue to pray uh, that you would please bring us back together soon, together in the flesh, where we can be encouraged by the voices of one another as we, we, we raise them in worship of our Lord Jesus. In the meantime, we groan. In the meantime, we eagerly wait with patience. Please deliver us soon, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.